everyone. Okay, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15, and it's actually lesson 30, which is crazy. There's 35 lessons in this book, and we're on lesson 30. So the, we are quickly approaching the end of our study here. John 15, and then lesson 30 in our books. John 15 and Lesson 30. Does everybody have their books, by the way? If not, I think they're on the back. So, so we're going to go ahead. We'll just go ahead and read John 15 to start us off. So we'll, um, we'll go around the room and read those like we normally do. So we'll go me, Pastor, turn John, then we'll do Mom, Grandma, then back to Andy, AJ, and back around like that. Okay. So John 15, uh, starting in verse 1. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except as abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, and the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same bringing forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast. <laughs> I can't see down the left okay. If he is cast forth as a branch, and is without, and is withered, and then gather them and cast them into the fire. And they are burned. Sorry. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Yeah. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends for all things. That I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. He hath not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, that your fruit should remain, and that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Does the world hate you? You know that it hates me before it hates if ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hated you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If ye have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken of them, they had not had sinned. But now they have no cloak for 
their sins. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other uh, man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. For this comes to pass that the word might be fulfilled, that it is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. It's probably some, obviously, really familiar verses you said, maybe verses you've heard before, not necessarily the context of what they're in. So it's, um, it's interesting. Be looking at uh, some of those and everything this morning. I actually want to read the, the intro to the lesson here that's in your book. I think it's pretty appropriate with um, putting the setting and everything here. It says, Nothing tasted better to Dale on a cold winter morning than his mother's hot homemade biscuits topped with a large portion of her homemade Concord grape jelly, jam and preserves. Just thinking of it made his mouth water. But that tasty treat didn't just happen. A lot of work went into making it possible. His mother, of course, had to can the jam and the jelly, working for hours in a very hot kitchen um, during the heat of summer without air conditioning. Before that, she had to pick the clusters of purple grapes from the vines, braving all sorts of bees, yellow jackets, and other pesky biting insects who also wanted their share of the sweet juice and pulp. But long before any of those clusters of grapes even began growing on the vine, Dale's father had to do his part to make the grape jelly jam or preserves possible. Before the grapes began producing, he had to examine the vines closely to determine which branches were broken, weak, diseased, or damaged. Then he took pruning shears and began to cut away the bad branches. Dale's responsibility was to gather all of the discarded branches, pile them into a heap, and then burn them. At first, Dale didn't understand why this task was necessary. Wouldn't they get even more grapes next year if they left all those branches on the vine? Then his father explained to him that all those bad branches did was sap the other good branches of their nourishment from the root and the larger part of the vine. By cutting away or pruning, the branches, his father was allowing more of the life-giving, grape-producing nutrients to flow to the good branches. That, in turn, guaranteed a much larger harvest than if they left all the branches, both good and bad, intact. Jesus used a similar illustration in the lesson we're going to study here. He said that for us children to bear fruit effectively, God must prune them, cutting out what is bad or a drain on their spiritual vitality, and thereby allowing his life-giving graces to flow unhindered into the believer's lives. As they respond to that pruning process, he enables them to bear much fruit. So how's God pruning your life right now? Are you resisting his wise pruning? Or are you trusting in his wisdom to bring forth even greater fruit for his glory? If you look at the page over there, there's also a little... Um, um, a little write-up there about the grapes. Actually, I'm going to read that, too. It's actually really interesting. Now, grapes were a significant commodity in the Judean agricultural society. It's likely that his disciples would have been quite familiar with vineyards from, and the care of grapevines from their extensive travel in Palestine. His husbandmen were responsible for maximizing the quality and quantity of the grape harvest in their vineyard. In John 15, Jesus taught his disciples about the fruit the Father was producing in their lives. His metaphor focuses on the union of the vine and the branches. Branches depended on the vine for support and nourishment. Branches were worthless if they were separated from the vine. The husbandman removed 
dead branches so that they would not sap nutrients from the fruitful branches. These dead branches were taken away and destroyed by fire. Fruitful branches were cut back or pruned so that they would not grow too much and divert nutrients into the vegetation rather than the fruit. Isn't that really interesting? Think of what Jesus talked about, the fig tree. Nothing but leaves. The husbandman's objective was to create balance between vegetative, vegetative growth and fruit production in order to increase the crop. So it's actually really interesting when you think about um, this lesson that he's giving here and when you kind of put, again, just the whole thing with vineyards and husbandmen kind of in context of what actually is, happens with those, it kind of makes a little bit, some of this stuff come alive a little bit more. So if you were, what did we look at last week? Anybody remember? What did we, what kind of, what did, what was kind of the topic of what we looked at last week? Anybody remember what chapter? John 14. We, uh, we kind of talked about last week that Christ kind of gave four promises in that chapter, kind of four big ones at least. And of course, the Holy Ghost is one of them. Anybody remember any others? Future dwelling place is coming back. We talk about peace. The peace that I give, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. And there's one more. Power through prayer. Yes. End your lesson there. And if you look at the end of verse four, end of uh, chapter fourteen. Verse 31 says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. So again, this has all been at the Last Supper at this point, at Christ's Last Supper. And now, end of the last chapter, Arise, let us go hence. And the words that he spoke here in John 15 and 16 were uttered on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. About a 20 or 30 minute walk, roughly. If you think of our map of Jerusalem here, again, with the temple being here, upper room kind of in this portion of the city, there's a good chance that he would have walked through the temple, most likely, to actually get through, you know, to the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives and everything over here. You know, perhaps as they passed rows of fir trees and vine branches on the way down the slopes of Mount Zion to the brook, you know, Kidron, the Kidron Valley right there, he stopped at a vineyard and spoke to his disciples these words here. Again, the events here in this lesson really probably occurred probably about two to three hours before Christ's arrest. So these are literally his last words that he's giving to his disciples here. So the moon probably was shining brightly, you know, against the hillside. Sweet smell of spring flowers was in the air. And you think that quietness you know, offered to the disciples no hint of the terror that they were going to experience very soon. But the Lord knew that these were his last moments with them. So this, kinda, this chapter kind of contains kind of basically three thoughts in chapter 15 here. That it, we'll, we'll talk about these in more detail here. It's kind of the disciples' responsibility is one, the world's persecution, and the Holy Spirit's coming. So let's look at the disciples' responsibility first. See, this is kind of probably the main part of what you think of with chapter 15. But you know, up to this point, Christ has been visibly present to minister to his disciples. You know, but 
now that he's leaving them, they have to learn to gather their strength from them in a different way. Their, you think about their faith and so much more, at this point has been very much based on sight, hasn't it? Seeing the miracles. Blessed are they that see not and still believe, what Jesus said to Nathaniel. Their responsibility had been to watch Christ and listen to him teach. Now, their responsibility would be to continue his work and teach themselves, teach others themselves. And then Christ kind of outlines their responsibilities here, kind of as two. First one, we see this in kind of the, kind of the probably the most familiar verses of John 15, to bear fruit. And I'll go ahead and bef- before I even go any further, I'll tell you this lesson is very convicting. So get ready. So bear fruit. Again, kind of picture yourself where they're going through here. They're making their way toward Gethsemane. They probably see a vineyard, you know, Jesus perhaps pausing by you know, a, a large vine. No, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, Jesus ever used physical, common, everyday things to illustrate spiritual truths. I am the true vine, my father is the husbandman. And then he would seize the opportunity to teach him a very important lesson, how to be fruitful Christians after he was gone. Here. Grapes are kind of an interesting thing, just with how they grow. I I didn't get a chance to really look much into it like I intended to, but it's kind of an interesting thing if you think, if you've ever seen it, of course, there's kind of like a central kind of like vine, and there's many different, again, clusters and kind of just offshoots, again, kind of like different little branches off of which the fruit grows, and then often there's like the central vine and everything here. So let's look at the nature of this fruit here. You know, some people say that the fruit of a Christian is another Christian. You know, that sounds kind of logical. You know, fruit of a grape is another grape. Fruit of an oak tree is another oak tree. But the Bible really defines fruit kind of as something more than that. We're going to look at kind of three things the Bible talks about, this fruit that the Bible talks about. It's kind of threefold. First is in character. Someone go to Galatians 5. I need someone to volunteer to go to Galatians 5 with Andy. And then actually, a couple more before we get there. Someone, Andy's got Galatians 5. Someone do uh, Philippians 1, verse 11, John. Someone Ephesians 5, 9. Someone volunteer, pastor. And then I need someone to do Romans 1, 13. Okay, come on, you got that? Galatians 5, once you're there. 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Fruit. Spirit. You can kind of summarize all that as your character, what you like, what you do. Next is our conduct. Philippians 1.11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto glory and praise of God. Ephesians 5 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. See again, fruit. 
fruit is evidence of something. So it's not is our character, it's also our conduct, but then also kind of following along with it, it is converts too. Uh, Romans one thirteen. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purchased purpose to come to unto you what was led hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. You know, believers are to manifest the fruit of godly character and conduct as well as the fruit of another Christian. If we're not bearing the first two, we're going to be worthless, and you're not going to have the other one either. Just as a branch that's cast and useless. And Jesus talks about salt is good, but if the salt's lost its savor, it's thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. So the question, are you vibrant and bearing these fruits? Or are you withered and worthless? So we see the nature of the fruit. Let's look at the production of the fruit. So believers, as believers, we, can, we bear or produce you know, these three kinds of fruit that we talked about in kind of the following two ways. Um, I need someone to read verses 2 and 3 here in John 15. Someone to volunteer to do that. Anybody? John? Go ahead and read those, please. production of this fruit, one way, it's by being cleansed daily with the Word of God. Uh, there's another passage it talks about with the washing of water by the Word. I don't remember the reference right off. You know, God uses His Word to prune our souls just as the farmer uses his shears to prune a grapevine. Isn't it some... Um, let me finish this here. Now, the, the word cuts away the dead leaves of sin and lethargy that saps her spiritual strength. For this reason, our devotions and scripture memory is important. Without them, tiny shoots and unnecessary leaves sprout and soon make you weak and worthless, unable to bear fruit. It's, it's really interesting when you think about it. And that analogy, like I can, yeah, and like from my life, I can tell you, you know, things that you know, Jesus talks about even in Hebrews, you know, lay aside every weight and the sin that death so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that's set before us. You know, God uses his word and the preaching of his word to prune our lives, to cut away the dead stuff, the stuff, the leaves that don't do anything, the leaves that waste our time, the leaves that distract us, the leaves that 
make us not as useful as we could be to him. It kind of goes, we think of that whole analogy there. Like, obviously, they cut away the dead stuff. That makes sense. But even, and if you caught it, even stuff that's good, a farmer will even prune back those branches too so that they will, it can bear more fruit. Because if it gets so much, it just diverts it to the vegetation and the leaves, and the fruit suffers for it. It's, uh, it's really interesting when you think about it like that. But it's his word that does it. You know, commentaries and blogs and people's stuff like that, you say good, good stuff, but it's the word that does it. That does it in our lives. That's what he uses is his word in our lives. And then secondly, by abiding in Christ. Can someone read verses 4 to 7? Go ahead, Andy. Abide in me, I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. The man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, he is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. So it means you got to work to stay safe, right? And if you don't, then you're going to get cast into hell, right? That's what it says, right? Of course not. It's not what it's saying. But what, so what does it mean to abide in Christ? Gotta keep yourself saved. Like think of the word abide. What's it mean? I I yeah, all those are good statements. It has the idea to know to remain, to stay, to live in with. Now abiding in Christ means living every day in conscious dependence upon him, depending on him, communicating with. If you abide with somebody, you're staying with them, right? And communicating with them about every decision we must make. To abide in him is to treat him as if he was present, which he is with you. To acknowledge him. idea of abiding with somebody, you don't ignore him. <laughs> I guess you can't, but... You don't ignore them. You're in communication. You're in fellowship with them. So we see the nature of the fruit, the production of that fruit. And it's, it's kind of interesting thinking about, you know, sometimes we tend to think, no, the vine or the branches, no, like, Christ is the vine, and every single one of us are like individual, and they're like branches and stuff, you know, like off of one huge, gigantic vine. And you can probably think of it that way. But it's also, I wonder if you can think of it as in the way of your life as like one plant. Think of it in this whole analogy. And Christ is the vine if you're in him. He is your central, he's your life. But if you think of your life as a whole thing, it makes a little bit more sense of pruning off dead stuff off of your life. A clip here and a clip there. 
pruning back this. This is good here, but pruning it back even more, so then it's going to grow even more in the future. So you think of it in like that. Just an interesting way to think about it. Next, we see, again, we're talking about the disciples' responsibility here. We got bear fruit, and then to love the brethren. Someone um, read verses 9 through 17. It's a longer passage here. Anybody? Go ahead. And... <clears throat> As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might, be, might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you my friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. He has not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Sound a little similar to something he's already said, just probably 30 minutes before this. Back in John 13. John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. But do you remember what had just happened right before he said that? He had just honored Judas. The one who is going to betray him and honored him, didn't reveal him to the other disciples, no, honored him by giving him the sop, the most honored guest. And then he said that right after, as an example to you. So you see what he's saying here. Again, notice what he said also right before this. Um, actually, in the verses that Andy had said, these things have I spoken unto you, that my, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Then he launches into, this is my commandment, that you love one another. So bearing fruit and loving the brethren. The trademark of the Christian is love. Christ commands us to love each other as he loved us and gave himself for us. And again, you think about that, what he just said, right after that to the one who betrayed him love one another as I have loved you so do you criticize others do you ever become jealous do you ever gossip about others because all of these actions are negative indicators of our love are signs that we don't This is, uh, this is part of the reason why I was talking about this gets a little hard. Think of 1 Corinthians 13, I think. Love behaved itself not unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, etc., etc., etc. 
Christ-like love never becomes jealous or envious. It never criticizes or gossips. And our responsibility is to exhibit Christ-like love. We're to manifest or demonstrate our love just as he demonstrated his love toward us by giving ourselves sacrificially for those whom we love. It's not just our family. Or the church. It's everybody. It says, as Dr. Walter Fremont defined it, love is an unselfish, self-sacrificing desire to meet the needs of the cherished object. So we're to be especially careful. Now he talks a lot about manifesting that kind of love towards fellow Christians. Obviously also to be a witness as well to our enemies as well. Jesus is an example of that with what he just did. That's hard. I think every single one of us, very much me, we all fall far short of that too often. Um, it's also in the context of abiding in him. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And But then he also said, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy, your joy, might be full. Henceforth I call you not friends. You're, you're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So we see the disciples' responsibility. But moving on here in the chapter, we also see the world's persecution. We see that persecution is the companion of godliness. No one who is abiding in Christ and bearing the fruit of Christian conduct can avoid persecution. Anybody know what the word persecute means? I didn't know this. This is really interesting. What's the word persecute mean? I think somebody like beating somebody kind of thing. Persecute really means, like the idea is to chase after, to pursue. Really interesting. You don't have to seek persecution is the way some people do, thinking that it makes them spiritual martyrs. <laughs> Rest assured it will find you. But that persecuted the idea to chase after, to pursue. We must choose between godliness and persecution or compromise and popularity. It's impossible to have both godliness and popularity with the world. So what are your priorities? But why is that so? Why is that so? I'm going to answer it in just a second, but why is that so? Christians automatically rejected just as Christ was rejected. So why do people persecute? Think of Christians in that sense. Because it's like Christ. Verses 18 to 20, if you look at that, it says that the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. 
Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will per also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep your saying. It's interesting. It says a good way to tell if you're like Christ is to compare the way the world treated Christ with the way it treats you. Because if you act like Christ, you'll be treated like Christ. No. Anybody else convicted on this yet? The, I mean, in some ways, some subtle things that we hear in a, and sometimes, or taught sometimes, in a way kind of go against this. You know, we need to, you know, the whole point of, you know, you need to be a good example and you know whatever, you know, to the world. That can kind of tendency to kind of back away from things and sometimes and stuff. I think you know what I mean when I say that, hopefully. But um, I think we use that as an excuse too often to not stand and to not open our mouths when we need to and to not be like Christ. How many times was Christ the only one standing I think, against the Pharisees? Many times <laughs> on different stuff. But anyway, then you see the world's persecution, the persecution Christians than Christians unlike the world. If you live a Christ-like life and abide in him, you will irritate the world. You and the world will disagree on many issues, including, again, you can give a laundry list of stuff here. Movies, television, jokes, music, entertainment, habits, attitudes toward morality, opinion um, on issues, war, divorce, church, leadership in the home, dress, homosexuality, you name it. You could give a bunch of different things lists of things that we could talk about there. Such incompatibility with the world's way of thinking and social patterns will so irritate the world that they can't help but despise Christians as they despised Christ. Think about Jesus said, I've come, now they have no cloak for their sin. The natural result will be persecution of some kind. Again, times we don't Persecution is not always like losing your head or um, losing your job or etc. It can be covert and subtle, or it could be blatant and physical, obviously. But continuing on, he also talks again about here, at the end of here, in verse 26 and 27. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. So again, he again reminds them here about the Holy Spirit that's going to come to be with them, to, in a way, take his place of being their guide, kind of, of being the one who um, counsels them to guide you into all truth. Um, he shall not speak of himself, he shall speak of me. Therefore, they didn't need to fear what he just talked about and be ashamed to testify publicly of him. So we should determine now that regardless of the cost, we will be true disciples of Christ. Such discipleship carries a hefty price tag, but it's worth it. Let's go forth boldly into the world, living in the abiding, loving, witnessing life of true disciples. Remember, as Jesus gave this challenge 
to his disciples, he was on his way to die for us. So are, you, are we willing to die for him? It's really easy to say, of course. But you know, we can't be ready or willing to die for him if we aren't ready and willing to live for him. What's Romans 12, 1 and 2 say? Make your life a living sacrifice unto God. You know, that's a can be a really hard thing. You know, it's so easy to say. Like we talked about, I don't remember, two weeks ago or something, it's really easy to talk the walk. But do we talk the walk or do we walk the talk? We need to make our lives a living sacrifice for Christ. Because if we don't do that, we're not going to die for him. Because what did, think about what did his disciples just say? I'm going to die for you. You're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. So said they all. Not all that. Are we better than them? No. So again, this lesson is really challenging to me, and I hope it is to you. But let's not just forget it in five minutes from now. Let's ask God what he wants to prune out in your life. I guarantee if you ask him, he'll tell you. But we need to be willing to do it. And then, so I challenge you to do that. And then you think about the world's persecution. Are we really living for him or do we just talk about it? Because there's a difference between those two. Do we walk the talk or do we just talk the walk? Let's go to some of the questions here. We'll finish up with those this morning. The uh, first one. So, like, what does it mean to prune a branch? What's it mean to prune? To, like, cut off or remove. That sounds positive, doesn't it? So why would a gardener do this to a Fruitful branch. This is no pruning can increase, very contrary to what you would think. <coughs> a branch is fruitfulness. So, what does this passage teach us about our ability to perform good works? And we can only do right by drawing strength from the vine. Without me. So what, what do you think Jesus meant by his command to abide or remain in him? We kind of already talked about some of this, but... To stay, to remain, to fellowship with, to abide, living in obedience with him. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is an interesting question. So what kinds of people are those who do not abide in him, do not bear fruit, and are cast in the fire? <clears throat> we didn't really talk about this. Huh? <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, 
probably could put several of the different applications and stuff on it. Again, it kind of depends on how you think about. Is it that if you think about it in an idea of like the two kind of ways that I was talking about of like, you know, if Christ is divine and we're all individual the branches or so to speak. Or if you think about it in a sense of like our life is like a vine, a grape plant, you want to call it that. And it prunes away the dead stuff. Think about it. Depends on how you think about it. So what's the purpose for Jesus' commands and warnings in this passage? What's his purpose for that? Kind of in the middle of the middle kind of the passage. You see it. Look at verse 11. <coughs> So what's the fruit in the life of the believer that he wants to be overflowing? You could argue anything, but um, if you think specifically about what we the question just before that was, and in the context of what he just said in the verse there in eleven, say sacrificial love for each other. So what do you think was on Jesus' mind when he spoke the words of verse 13? Likely he was thinking about his own death that was pending. So if you were a disciple, what would you have thought about those words that you remember them a year later? Again, this is one of those put yourself in their shoes kind of questions. So if you were a disciple, what would have come back to your remembrance of what he just said here? Just reminded of what he All things to your remembrance, what Sir Brett said. So this next question, what's the attitude of worldly people towards you? Person, no good worker, does a good job, but any worldly person can do that. But why are you different? And do they know enough about your faith in Christ to hate you as they hated Jesus? Granted, not every single person, it's not to give the point that not every single 
person who's unsaved hates your guts. But the world system, the world culture, the world's way of thinking about things is in direct opposition to what God says on that. So how do they treat us? Do they treat us like Christ? Again, I hope this was a very challenging lesson to you. It's not one of those like really feel good kind of come away saying rah rah kind of lessons, but I hope that God put something on your heart and ask him about it. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, let's thank you for this lesson. I mean, the truths of what you say are just as relevant today as they were when they were spoken 2,000 years ago. And think of in our lives, think of my life, of how you're at work and you desire to be working and you know, pruning away the, the dead stuff out of our lives and the things that sap us of our attention, they distract us away from you and you desire to make us more like you, to grow us that we can bear fruit that you're glorified because of it. And it can be really easy to get focused on the negative, on why you're doing this, and different stuff, Lord. But I ask that you would, that each and every one of us would just ask you what you want to do in our lives and what needs to go. And I ask that you would please help us to do that. And that we would live in front of this world such that we're like you and we get the same treatment as you. <laughs> and that's, again, another easy thing to say, but not as easy to do. And it's only through you that we can do that. And I pray for the services to come, that you just be with Pastor as he opens your word shortly. Just help him um, that we would be able to be attentive, be able to stay focused and awake and alert that you would just be working in our hearts and lives this morning. In Jesus' name.